Well, welcome to this podcast. I'm Jim Hansen uh, on the advisory board for the Golf Week Greater Panel. And I'm really thrilled today to have as our guest for the podcast, John Strawn. Uh, we'll get into his uh, biography in golf in just a minute, but I'll, I'll just say John and I have been friends, I think for about 30 years. Uh, I mean, I've, and, and we're actually here to talk to him today about really what amounts to the 30th anniversary of the publication of his book, Driving the Green, uh, which was a book that was really formative to me as I moved into my interest in the history of golf courses and environmental golf, uh, impact of golf courses and architecture. And John's book came out in 1991, Driving the Green. And it was really very formative for me because I there was a lot about how golf courses got developed and built and the issues concerned that all, all all the different issues, economic and social and ecological and everything. I was only vaguely aware of a lot of it. And John's book was uh, was just really so important to me. Um, and so, John, first, I want to welcome you and thank you for being with us uh, for this podcast. Well, it's great to be with you, Jim. You know, and I, I'm honored that you what you said about driving the green, but I remember very well uh, getting a letter from you back in the days when letters were actually written. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, saying that you were uh, teaching a course in environmental uh, history of golf uh, at Auburn and doing research on the subject and wanted to to talk. So it, that that launched, as you say, this friendship, which is now three decades old. Yeah, it's terrific. And, you know, I'm, I, I've reread your book recently in, in preparation for the podcast and just to enjoy it again. Uh, Driving the Green, tell us about how what, what led you to write the book. Uh, and we're going to we'll probably evolve that answer, you know, as yeah, I go yeah. deeper into questions. But what, what's your first set of comments about why, why you, what led you to the book? It's a very interesting uh, sort of process of how I came to write that book. I had been an academic. I was a college history teacher, as you know, uh, teaching American history at a liberal arts college. And I really wanted to be a writer. Um, but I didn't know if I could make a living being a writer. So I had actually started working. Uh, I started a small remodeling business. I was a, my dad was a carpenter. I grew up in the trades. I knew how to build stuff. I thought I could support myself with that as I began to write. So I started writing. This would have been in the uh, late 70s. Uh, started writing about sports of various kinds uh, uh, basketball. I wrote a book with Jack Ramsey, the Hall of Fame basketball coach. I wrote a NBA column for a local alternative newspaper in Portland called Willamette Week. I wrote a sports column for Oregon Magazine. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I was not yet playing golf. Um, I had caddied a little bit as a boy. After my dad died, I spent some time with an aunt and uncle. who My uncle lived in northern Illinois. He was a, an avid golfer. Um, I actually uh, kind of dedicated driving the green to him and the memory of him. And I wrote about him a little bit in uh, what became an afterword of that book. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't play golf I, I, um, until uh, maybe in the 82, 83, something like that. One of the guys who worked for me was a great golfer that I worked with in the construction business guy named Mark Bailey. And we had played basketball together. He'd played basketball at the U of O on a basketball scholarship. <clears throat> Excuse me, Jim. And I had played city league basketball. Basketball was the sport I love until my ankle started saying stop, stop uh, in my late 30s. And so Mark said, hey, let's go play golf. So we got together with a couple of friends who went to play golf. And I was absolutely dreadful. I mean, I watched the guys I was playing with hit these beautiful drives down the middle of the fairway, and then I whiffed the first time I swung at the thing. Uh, but after a while, I, I actually hit a good tee shot, uh, finally, on what was, I think, about the 13th hole, and I was kind of hooked. So I started playing golf, you know, and, and really trying to learn how to play golf. Well, fast forward, 19, I think in 1984, Tracy Kidder, the great nonfiction writer <clears throat> who had written a wonderful book about the development of the personal computer called The Soul of a New Machine, wrote a book called House. And House was the chronicle of the design and building of a custom home in Massachusetts. 
And I remember reading a review of it in the New York Times and just being overwhelmed with jealousy uh, that, oh, this is a book I should have written. I know all this process well uh, from having built custom homes and worked with architects and so on. So I said, the next time I have a good idea, to, I, I'm going to follow through on it. I'm going to try to do it. Again, a couple of years later, uh, a hotshot literary agent in New York named Richard Pine, uh, who worked in the agency founded by his father, which is now evolved into Inkwell. Richard signed a number of my writer friends in Portland. Uh, the first one was Catherine Dunn, whose great novel Geek Love was, I think, the first of the Portland books. Um, my closest friend, Larry Colton, uh, got a contract to write a book, which became Goat Brothers, which was a big success. It was a, when it really mattered, it was a main selection of Book of the Month Club. Um, and another friend, Tom Bates, got a deal to write a book about the bombing of the math research building in Madison, Wisconsin, where he and I were both graduate students in the late 60s. I think the bombing was in 71. He wrote that book. Anyway, Richard Pine reached out to me and said, John, if you have a book idea, let me know. So not long after this, this is, this is a story that has a lot of funny twists and turns, Jim. So I was driving to what was then called Delta Park, now called Heron Lakes, a 36-hole golf complex. The first course was opened in 69, designed by Robert Trent Jones officially, although Bobby, Robert Trent Jones Jr., running the West Coast office, was the person who was actually doing the work on that project. But it's officially a Trent Jones senior course. And then in the early eight, about 84, uh, was hard, uh, RTJ2 was hired to do the second course. So I'm driving out to hit balls and I look over and there's a bunch of guys in pickup trucks and there's some heavy equipment out in a field. Uh, and I just stopped and said, what are you guys doing? They said, we're, we're building a new nine holes. We're going to add, uh, they did it in increments. They now have 36, but it was 20, 27 for a brief while. And I, it was a guy working for Bobby named Mike Stark. And I spent a couple of hours just looking at the drawings and talking to them about what they were doing. I mean, I knew about building things and it was just fascinating to me. And that's when, you know, kind of the light bulb went off for me that instead of doing the book house about a subject I actually knew something about, how about I do it with a golf course and then I would learn about the process. So I wrote a letter to Richard Pine saying, I'd like to write a book about the design and building of a golf course. His enthusiastic response was immediate. And he said, you have to write a treatment. So I, I didn't, wasn't sure what that was, but I talked to Larry Colton and he explained to me. And so anyway, I, I did it. And um, <clears throat> I was looking for uh, a golf course architect to work with. So I wrote a letter to Robert Trent Jones Jr. because I, he was the most famous guy. And we had good friends in Menlo Park. We used to visit and driving from the San Jose airport to their house. We literally would drive by the RTJ2 office. And I remember the brass plate outside Robert Trent Jones, two golf course architects. So I thought that's the guy I wanted. So I wrote a letter to Bobby uh, and about a week later or so I called to follow up and his assistant, Gudrun Noonan, uh, answered and said, I told her who I was. She said, oh, Mr. Jones said to tell you if you called if he thought a book like this was a good idea, he would write it himself. So he really doesn't want to talk to you about it. And at that point, I wasn't sure what to do. So I, I discovered there's, there's this American Society of Golf Course Architects. I write a letter to them. Their routine response to any inquiry was to send a note to everybody who's a member uh, and just saying, here's somebody who's inquired about golf design. The only person who responded to that letter was Keith Foster on behalf of Arthur Hills. And Keith was um, then, I think, probably 30 years old. I mean, he was uh, had only been working for art a short time. He was based in Phoenix, working uh, the West Coast for art after having been a superintendent for Wadsworth. 
uh, on golf construction. So he introduced me to Art. I called Art, and when I called Art in his very phlegmatic way, he just said, sure, that'd be fine. I told him I want to be a fly on the wall. I want to watch a project from beginning to end. So I then flew to Met Art in Atlanta, and we looked at a course there. The owner was not interested. We then flew to Florida, met with another potential client, not interested. And the third one we met was with Alan Schur in West Palm Beach. Let me just interject a question at this point, and that is the, the, the non-interest you got from a couple of the course owners uh, is it that they don't really want to show how the sausage is made they, or they're concerned about what exactly? I, I, that was my sense is that they just didn't really want anybody butting into their business somehow. They weren't sure what it would be. Nobody had ever done this before, Jim. I was the first person ever to write a book about the design and building of a golf course. So this was entirely new territory. Nobody knew what to think about, what to expect. Um, but Alan Schur was confident lovely, open, um, you know, he, he wanted to share his business. He was so enthusiastic about what he want, was doing. So I ended up writing this, uh, the proposal based on uh, what the course that would become Iron Horse in West Palm Beach. Um, and uh, within the days of my uh, submitting that proposal, Richard was able to get me this contract with a significant advance from a six-figure advance, amazingly enough, uh, from Harbor Collins. Um, a one of the uh, acquiring editors who had looked at the book, actually, who didn't acquire the book, who some somebody from a publisher who didn't acquire the book but was enthusiastic about it, uh, suggested the title "Driving the Green." And I thought it was great. I, yeah, like, explore. I love. I love titles. I'm always really careful about my book titles. Yeah. Uh, it has double entendre. So to, to un unfold that double entendre for us. Exactly. No, it, it was perfect for me because uh, driving the green, as you know, as a golf race, means that you hit a wonderful tee shot, and if it's like a short par four, you try to drive the green. Um, so driving the green in the golf sense means a superlative shot effectively. Um, and then driving the developer was the idea of making some money. So uh, making some green. So I, I thought it had both those meanings that was perfect for what I was doing. And, and again, you know, my goal in doing this, Jim, and this is what distinguishes me, I think from maybe other people who have written about golf architecture is that although I was really interested in architecture and I'll, I'd like to talk more about that. Um, my interest was not in trying to make an assessment of, you know, who's the best architect among the modern architects or who was the greatest among the traditional architects, because I think those are all at the end of the day, um, you know, subjective. And I know you're part of this ratings group with Golf Week, and I know it's a huge, important uh, uh, engine driving interest in, in golf design. Um, but that was not my interest. My interest is how has this uh, uh, huge uh, trend of developing golf courses, uh, what are its sort of larger effects within society? I mean, I'm still a historian as I'm thinking about this. And um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an ongoing issue for me, the, the, the degree to which our fellow historians I think discount and disregard the impact of golf course communities and the kind of master planning that goes into them in it, the overall effect of that on our society and culture. I think that's not been appreciated fully, but, but I, so I wanted to look at this from the point of view of everybody involved in the process and the golf course architect and the developer being the two most important. Uh, and then, you know, I started right at my one of the first things I did was enroll in the Harvard Graduate School of Design seminar in golf course architecture taught by Robert Muir Graves and Jeff Cornish, both of whom became good friends. One of my classmates was Jan Beljan, you know, who recently was the president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, a longtime Fazio associate and another good friend. 
woman. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure everybody knows that. Women, yeah, one of the yeah. few women who's had a big success. Uh, I mean, Alice Dice, you know, Cynthia died. Uh, um, but, you know, not a huge number of women. So Jan has been, a, you know, very influential in that regard. So she was one of my classmates. And then I went to the uh, annual meeting of the American Society of Golf Course Architects in Bermuda. And it was one of the last big public appearances, I think. Uh, well, it wouldn't have been among the last. I take that back. But Robert Jones Sr. was there. Oh, and he you. sat, yeah. exactly, he sat like a little Buddha in a chair as everybody came up to pay, you know, homage to him. Yeah, exactly. Bowing down. And I met the Trent Jones guys at that, which is interesting. You know, I still didn't know Bobby well, uh, but I met the guys who were, you know, Gary Lynn, Don Knott, Kyle Phillips. They were all there. They were, couldn't, I could not have been welcomed with more open arms than I was by the architects when I came to Bermuda. Um, and the amazing thing to me, this was on a big plane, like it was a Lockheed L-1011 or something. One of the, um, you know, it was a jumbo jet where they had like, you know, two, five, two or three, five, three or whatever. I mean, it's huge. And I'm in the back because I'm flying coach. And amazingly enough, in a plane that probably had 300 people on it, the person I sat next to was Ron Witten. Oh, my goodness. And he and that's how I met Ron Witten. He was traveling cheap, too. <laughs> he was traveling cheap, too. He's probably had Golf Digest paying for it, though, you know. But anyway, um, and, of course, Ron and I became friends and have been now for those many years. But that was really going to Bermuda and, and meeting the other golf course architects. And uh, that was really enlightening to me. I had a great time with that. But then I just started, you know, going down. I went to West Palm Beach. And right away learned one of the really hard lessons of golf course development, which is I leased an apartment for uh, nine months because uh, according to the schedule that they had given me of when they were going to start construction, when the lease was up, they hadn't had a shovel in the ground yet. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is typical, which I know now, you know, fraud, things don't go as easily as you would you, think. You picked you picked the wrong nine months, I guess. <laughs> exactly. I picked the wrong nine months. But uh, again, it gave me a chance to, you know, continue to study. Um, and I got very interested in assessing the impact of uh, Frederick Law Olmsted on the evolution of golf course communities and was able to go and do some research uh, in, in, uh, on Olmsted. I did a little bit of digging in uh, you know, National Archives that looking into the federal government's uh, role in uh, developing golf, um, like during the Depression. Um, so anyway, I, I, I was able to deepen my knowledge of sort of the overall settings, I think. But I really wanted to write a book about my observation of the process. Uh, from so you, I mean, you, 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 being a professional historian, you knew about archival research. You knew about, you know, reading the literature, uh, mm -hmm. diving deep into the background story. But, but you also knew for this piece, in a sense, you had to be kind of a journalist or chronicler as well. Correct? I mean, you were going to be in on the field, on the property, doing interviews, not just interviews, but mostly, probably more than interviews. You're, you're listening. You're parts of. You're, you're, you're third party to lots of different conversations and so forth. Is that, and, and go on, tell us more about your method of, of learning. Yes. And so from the very beginning, um, when I approached the people that I was going to be working closely with on this project, in other words, I met Alan Schur, the developer, of course, Art Hills, the architect, Art's right-hand man for Florida, Mike Dasher, who became a very good friend. Um, and was there on the day-to-day, -day, the guys working for Wadsworth and so on. And I told everybody the same thing. Uh, I am here observing your personal and private business. And if you tell me not to report about something, I will honor that. But if you don't tell me no, I'm going to assume that I can write about it. And they all said, oh yeah, sure. And then they forgot it in five minutes and nobody ever once asked me don't don't report this don't this is something i don't want you to talk about i mean they and just did, did any of them come to regret that 
<laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't think so because it was never ever my interest to try to, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm an investigator, but I wasn't a, a gotcha person in any, any way. I, you know, I honor what these guys are doing or the people involved in the project were doing. Um, and, you know, I was really interested in learning how they did their work and what the processes were. And so, um, you, I think, um, it was my goal was that someone who read this book would have a clear sense of what the process of developing a golf course was like from the acquisition of the land through hitting the first tee shot. So that, that was my goal. Tell, tell us about some of the other cast characters in your cast of characters, because there are some really, there are some very intriguing ones. I mean, I think the book succeeds and is great in so many different levels, but you, you were in a way, maybe you weren't fortunate in having the cast that you have, but in other words, maybe you were, I mean, there was a real a variety of personality types and people and from coming from different directions. And maybe that's the nature of, the beast, and you're talking about building a golf course. Maybe that's a typical thing. Do you regard the, the cast of characters as pretty typical, given that you later went on and did a lot of things similar to this, you know, from within the industry? Yeah, you know, Jim, I think it really was. And one of the one of the responses I got to the book, which always made me feel really good, was that uh, other developers, other golf course architects, other people. Uh, who had worked in golf course projects would say to me, oh, that was just like my project. If you just change the names, it would be the same story. And I know that isn't exactly true, but I, I thought, okay, that's that's the best praise I could have for believing that I had captured the sense of the demands and the conflicts and so on uh, from among these um, uh, people working on the project. But yeah, like the guys that did the clearing, who were from a very famous uh, clearing company uh, based in North Carolina. And they did right-of-way clearing all over the country for pipelines and for highways and so on. So these were the, 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 the top clearing guys still in business. And a lot of them were Cherokee because they were from Western North Carolina. So they were Eastern Band Cherokee. Um, again, never anticipating this, but fast forward, uh, almost 20 years, uh, when I was working with RTJ2, we designed a golf course for the Eastern Band Cherokee in Western North Carolina. Um, and I went back and visited some of the guys that had worked on the Iron Horse Project who were still working for Phillips and Jordan uh, up in North Carolina. So um, I think, I, you know, I just enjoyed meeting the the land planners. I knew very little about the profession of land planning uh, um, before I started working on this project. I knew in general you had to do plans, but I didn't understand really uh, what was going on in, in producing a, a master plan community, a, a planned unit development uh, could be 300 acres, 500 acres, 1,000 acres. And again, this is one of the things, Jim, where I think that the, the average person doesn't understand the, the professionalism required and the knowledge required to to do these kind of master plans and and their impact, um, you know, you, you certainly see it in in a state like Florida, uh, Arizona. Uh, it's you know you can fly in, uh, you see it. Yeah, tell us tell us about the bird lady and all of the issues related to regulations and environment. I mean, that to me, of course, given my inclination to those subjects going into the early nineties. Tell us what you, what that, tell us about that part of the story and what you learned. Yeah, th that was very interesting. There was a, an endangered species uh, called the snail kite, a little raptor uh, that feasted exclusively on these little apple snails that lived in, on trees. And um, they were vulnerable to habitat destruction, which is the key element, although, Climate change has probably overtaken it now, but you know the the main element in 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 endangered species management. And Rosa Dorado, she was a snail kite advocate basically, and was worried about uh, the implications of um, having 
the habitat altered where there were snail kites. And so it was interesting to me to learn about this. Um, now, a couple of things. Florida and Oregon, now you, you, when you think of them politically, culturally in every way as, as separate as you can be. I mean, they're, Very they, first of all, they're physically separate in the continent, but that, you know, politically and so on. But um, at the time uh, that of the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, they were traveling along very similar lines. There were um, they, this so-called quiet revolution in planning, uh, an attempt to in, in, install land use laws and so on. And people have to, in order to do development, you had to do an assessment of the uh, environmental implications, the so on. That was happening in Florida in a really big way at that time. Uh, and that continued to be Oregon and Florida kind of going on parallel lines in terms of trying to control development uh, until Jeb Bush's governorship, when that all got suspended and then everything began to shift. Uh, Oregon, of course, is stuck with land use, which interestingly enough is not diametrically opposed to golf course development uh, as the existence of abandoned dunes, the greatest golf resort in the world attests, uh, but it is much, much harder to develop in Oregon than it is in Florida now, even though at the time Iron Horse was being built, I think they were operating on very similar uh, uh, scenarios. And in fact, when Pumpkin Ridge was built outside of Portland, again, more or less contemporary with Iron Horse, a little bit younger, um, you could still build a golf course in Oregon under an ag use permit, um, which you no longer can do. And it's almost, it's very difficult to do a, a golf course development in Oregon now. Not so difficult in Florida, even though they still have to meet plenty of regulations. They have to mitigate if they, you know, for modifying wetlands and so on. So, um, but I think just observing the way in which the environmental uh, concerns of the citizens of Florida were having an impact on the way developers operated and the rules they had to follow. That was an interesting uh, part of the of the narrative, I think. Uh, do you do you think that there was? I mean, going. To, I want a question about the culture or the environment of development now in a political and social sense. Nineteen eight late eighties versus today. Um, do you think, I mean, back then there seemed to be some real clashes between environmental organizations and uh, development. I mean, I was part, you know, kind of in a tertiary way with the so-called golf and environment movement, you know, that was had, that tried to bring and did in fact end up bringing um, golf groups like USGA, superintendents, the architects and, and so on. Um, under the sponsorship, some to some extent of golf magazines, also like Golf Digest, and then environmental groups. And the first national summit was, I think, in 91 or two at Pebble Beach. And then over the course of four or five years of meeting, of trying to get the two groups together, coming up with a document, Environmental Principles for Golf Courses in the United States. And I was part of, of many of those meetings. Um, but I'm not asking to comment on that movement per se, but just in terms of, I mean, your career really has gone from you know, the eight, the late 80s, at least, you know, to the present in the golf industry. And how would you describe how the relationship between golf and because I've seen recently, uh, again, um, USGA is still, you know, they're, they're still promoting golf and sustainability and golf and environment issues. I've seen posts about that in very recent days. So how do you think in terms of looking at it as, as a historian and someone from the inside of the industry, how do you how would you describe the evolution of the relationship between golf and environmental organizations and concerns over the past 30 years? I think it's been quite a remarkable confluence between the expectations and interests of the larger public and the professional organizations within the golf industry. I mean, if you observe it close hand from the architects to the superintendents and to equipment suppliers and developers themselves, hugely important to pay attention to the environmental impacts uh, of the development itself, the way things are built, the techniques used to build things, design. Um, probably the biggest change has been 
uh, the typical golf course in 1990 would have had wall-to-wall -wall irrigation on 100 acres of turf or so. Um, now, uh, and Art Hills was a pioneer in, I think, a lot of ways with this, not as acknowledged as he should be, but to build a small tee box uh, for, the say, the back tee, the championship tee, there might be 150 yards of native area before the fairway starts. And then subsequent tees getting closer and closer so that the guy who's likely to dribble can hit a tee shot and not lose his ball immediately. But I think multiple tee boxes and preserving native areas, that starts in the late 80s. Uh, and at a place like Bonita Bay, Art Hills was a real pioneer, I think, in, uh, in dealing with that, although I would not call him an environmentalist per se. But, um, but I think what they find is that the buying public, the people who were purchasing the homes, which are still driving the development of most of these courses, um, they were attracted to developments which had environmental bona fides that could be demonstrated. And that's where the, the Audubon Society and Ron Dotson, I think, did a really great service. I know it was somewhat controversial because of the use of the name and there was some you know, hostility to it still within some uh, of the more left uh, progress, uh, uh, environmental groups. But I, I think in general, you'd had this confluence of the market responding in a way, but the professional organizations developing the techniques uh, uh, to, to manage the environment much, much more successfully in terms of um, providing habitat, retaining habitat, encouraging um, wildlife on courses and so on. So I think now, uh, I love what the USGA, USGA is doing now with looking at the the natural capital that golf courses provide to communities by which I mean open green space um, with um, uh, you know a positive uh, impact on on air quality and carbon sequestration and uh, so on and I don't know what the long-term impact of the pandemic is going to be, Jim, but it's been remarkable to see golf courses are flourishing in a way that they haven't since the 80s. Um, and whether that will persist or not, I think is the big question on everybody in the golf industry's um, mind right now. But uh, if you think of, I think what, what golf, what I like to see golf doing now is that it's a trifecta for health benefits for individual players. So if you're in the Northwest where I live, we always walk. Nobody, nobody that I know has ever taken a cart voluntarily. And, you know, unless it was a shotgun start and you had to as part of a tournament, people like to walk and they like to carry their bags. And so you have these three things you're getting outside in this beautiful environment. It's like, you know, the, the Japanese have this thing of going and resting in among trees and, for the psychological, emotional benefits. So we know being outside is healthy for you in, in green spaces and golf uh, provides that. It's good to get the exercise. You're carrying the bag and walking for four hours and you're getting some benefit. And the third thing is you're with your friends and we're social creatures and we benefit so much emotionally from being around people we care about. So I think golf, I think we have a much better positive story to tell. Um, because I, I remember, being on airplanes many times was sitting next to someone who would ask what I did. And if, if I said I, I, would, I worked in, in golf course architecture, I get one or two responses. It was either like, oh man, you are so lucky. I wish I had your job. That was one kind of response. But another was like, I had just told them that I sold drugs to children. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that terrible for the environment? Aren't you destroying pristine? Well, I say, well, no, we're much more likely actually to work in a brownfield or in a degraded site that we're going to restore. I mean, Chambers Bay would be one just among many, many, many examples of that, you know, a played out quarry, which becomes a beautiful golf course. So anyway, I think for your bigger question, Jim, that we, we really have created a an apparatus now that understands the challenges uh, of the environmental impact of golf very well. I think the superintendents are phenomenal. Um, 
they don't want to use they don't use chemicals prophylactically they don't use them uh, uh, capriciously uh, they want a healthy turf to outcompete and so that's what they focus on I I think uh, water quality is of tremendous importance and so someone there's an organization in Oregon called the Freshwater Trust which is um, deals with a variety of, of water use issues in rivers, lakes, and so on. They've been working with Mike Kaiser at, at Bannon for a decade and a half, preserving the watershed that Bannon gets its water from. They want good, clean, pure water. So um, they've invested a huge amount in land that's remote from the golf course to make sure that that habitat is preserved properly and uh, so that the water that flows off the hills above Bannon comes to them clean. So I don't think people realize the degree to which these collaborations and cooperations are going on. Uh, this is getting uh, pretty far afield from the book, which I wanna return to, but I do, your own career go goes far afield from the book in a, in a sense. I mean, and you mentioned travel on airplanes and that one thing that I know that you did when you worked for Hills and then with Jones too, uh, and then, and subsequently is, you you did travel a lot, and you were really you really saw firsthand the sort of the globalization of golf course development. You spent quite a bit of time in Asia, correct? And tell us about that, and tell us about what you saw there. You know, what are the ma what are the major? I mean, if you were giving a talk on your your experiences in traveling abroad and the global globalization of the game. Do you, do you see the same good things happening there or do you see some bad things happening there along the way? Yeah, it's definitely more complicated overseas. And, you know, I think that the most pernicious of all the impacts, um, and I, have, I hate to have to even acknowledge this, but there are parts of Asia where um, a um, corrupt dictatorial government um, someone involved with the government wants to build a golf course and they literally force people off the land at gunpoint to acquire the land and and it that's very compromising and difficult scenario so uh it's not typical far from it but it definitely happens um and i think it's um that what's interesting to me is the degree to which in the same way that when golf came to the united states it shifted dramatically and subtly uh, from practices in the UK. So that uh, whereas most or many of the great golf courses of, of the British Isles, the Lynx courses are, are, are essentially public courses. All the, the courses of St. Andrews are part of the Lynx Trust um, and clubs associated with them are private, but the courses themselves are open to the public. Uh, when in the U.S. the country club became the dominant mode and as golf became very popular, then we began to develop municipal courses. Now, of course, I think the ratio is probably four to one of, new, of daily fee courses. Some are privately held uh, to, to public courses, but uh, to, yeah, public courses to, to private. But the, the private clubs are still the dominating presence within the golf uh, world. In other words, Augusta has an impact that way exceeds uh, uh, the, the size of its membership because of who they are. I mean, it's hugely important and the way they do things is hugely important for the rest of the industry. But in Asia, uh, it, it is, there are essentially no, what we would call daily fee courses really in China, very few in Korea, they're 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 all uh, organized around um, the big cheeses being able to play, uh, and it just the way it's organized is very different. Playing Japan and uh, playing golf in Japan is so unlike playing golf in the United States uh, because of the social setting. I mean, you check into the course like checking into a hotel. You know, you play nine holes and you have a huge lunch for a couple of hours and then you go play nine holes and then you go have a bath and so on. So it's a day at least, you know, to play a round of golf. 
so very different than what we're used to, not pop in, pop out, change shoes in the parking lot. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, I, there's, it, it's complicated in many ways um, by who, who, who the market's for, who's organizing it. Um, I mean, we, I've been involved in projects in, in Portugal and Spain and Italy and Hungary and Poland and in Russia, uh, in North Africa and Morocco, Tunisia. Uh, this is all through uh, Trent Jones. Uh, because Trent Jones, even now, is, I think, the uh, among the best-known names in international golf, um, even though there are obviously an ascendant group in the United States of prominent architects, uh, Gil Hans, most notably, Doak, uh, Kurt Crenshaw, uh, and, and others uh, coming up. So... Uh, but yeah, it was interesting to me to see and, and try to assess the way in which the settings of golf were modified by the cultural practices of the countries where the courses were. Uh, let me ask you about your book again. Did you think, does your book have a thesis? Does it have an argument or is it just more of a, is it more left up for the reader of the book to sort of draw his or her own conclusions of what it all means? It does not have an argument. Uh, it was a, the goal was to report as reliably um, and honestly as I could. Um, and in the famous words of Sam and Johnson, you know, let, let, let the reader qualify. Um, I didn't want to try to tell anybody to think about what I was seeing. Uh, I wanted to tell them what I observed and to try to do that in an entertaining way, I hoped. I mean, not not a haha entertaining way, but one that would want want you to keep reading. Uh, but it was not about playing golf, and it was not about making arguments about um, who um, inter whose interests should be favored or anything at all like that. Um, it was really just to here's what the experience is like from the point of view of the architect. Here's the from the point of view of the guy putting in the irrigation pipe. Here's from the guy point of view of shaping the holes and so on. You, I, in the shapers, the discussion of the shapers was really important to me. I mean, I, I guess I had thought about them some, but I didn't realize. I mean, they're critically important in the in the creation of the golf course, aren't they? Absolutely. The shapers were kind of the prima donnas of the construction crews. <laughs> and, but, uh, you know, it's very interesting now uh, because of that, in part, that's why I think among the modern that this, the, the contemporary architecture, I should say, uh, most of them either claim to or uh, actually do shaping. Uh, and I'm not sure that I believe that that is an essential component of a good design uh, or a designer's skills. But I know that it's really important to someone like Gil Hans, uh, uh, or my good buddy Dan Hickson out here in Oregon to you know, be able to climb up on the iron and push some dirt around. Well, you've given me, you've opened a door for me that I, I have to push open. And that is when you, when you were describing this and you said modern and then you corrected and said contemporary, you know, one thing that I've been, now that I'm on this advisory panel, I've been a golf week grader in courses, you know, for since 1997. So I'm one of the first golf week guys to do this. But in looking at the list, what has distinguished the golf week list for since its inception is the distinction between classic and modern, with the 1960 being the dividing line. And, and I'm not sure why they chose that other than, you know, I, I'm not sure the reasons were, were good enough. But you know, time changes. And as a historian, you know, when we were kids, you know, our history classes didn't get beyond the chapters on World War II usually, even though it was in the 1960s or 1970s, the teachers just didn't get there. But time marches on and you can't teach a, a modern, you know, any kind of history class, modern history class now and stop at World War II. You've got to get it into the 21st century. Well, it seems to me that the 1960 dividing line and the division of classic and modern is going to become anachronistic and obsolete, and maybe it already has. And I've been exploring, I've been looking at the Golf Week data in terms of the rankings. And if you look at, at the top 100, and I've looked at the top 200, you know, there's, uh, there's only two courses on the classic list 
Golf League, top 100, the date after 1939. I mean, even though they, they supposedly goes up to 1960, there are only two that are in the top 100 that come after 1939. And then if you look at the courses from 1960 to the present, and you know we're about to publicize the newest ratings for this for 20, you know for this past year, and out of the top 100, there are probably I don't know 20 low 20s that are between 1960 and 1995, because there's been such a the attraction of the minimalist architecture, you know, sand hills, abandoned dunes, the you know, core Crenshaw Doak. I mean, deservedly so. They're you know they're, they're it's really great design, but it seems to me that certainly from a historical point of view, that a trifurcation of the course data makes more sense now to me than a bifurcation does. I mean, I really think looking at the data, the, what, what happens is a lot of the cor great courses from the era of post-World War II into the early 90s, they've all dropped off the rankings. They're not anywhere in the top 100 anymore. And there's a lot of great courses and great designers. It's just a different era. And to me, I mean, I, I'm going to make a pitch to Golf Week that it's time to consider trifurcating and using the categories that you just used, classic, modern, contemporary. And I think contemporary, we can, I mean, that's be an interesting discussion at an architectural summit. When does contemporary start? I would say sometime in the mid-90s. You know, I would say Sand Hills in Nebraska was kind of a landmark development. And Bandon and, and Bandon was in the process of, of, you know, emerging at that point as well. So you've opened that door for me. I've actually rushed through it, but I would be interested in your honest reaction. To, I mean, I know you're not. Most architects are not a big fan of the rankings at all, anyway, unless they're Doak and Corn Crenshaw and Hanson. They get them all now at the top. But do you agree with me that you know that there that it's time to think about making more relevant historical eras for the rankings and then getting more getting the getting courses you know from that era that maybe you know it seems to me that architecture does go in cycles and you know when the renaissance came in in the 15th century they created this word gothic to to you know to demean all of the cathedrals that have been built in Europe you know since the middle ages well, you know, today we realize how great the architecture was of the medieval cathedrals. We don't have the Renaissance attitude, but it seems like we're in a period of Renaissance where we're looking, where the, those that are adherents to that style are looking back to the early era and saying, boy, was that terrible. You know, we don't even have top 100. We can't even come up with the top 100 list of courses from the end of World War II to the early 1990s, which I think is nonsense. So I've ranted. Uh, what's your reaction? You know, it's you hit on something that's really uh, important to me uh, in thinking about this. The the shift into what I call contemporary design, I think, has left less to do with the skill of the designers and more to do with the return to what made the Golden Age courses great, primarily, which was they all had good sites. And so what the biggest impact of the arguments of the Dokian golf club atlas and so on school is that developers started paying a lot more attention to the sites they were getting and were looking for and trying to identify. And so, um, as I think Bill Poor has said, you know, there were an infinite number of courses available to do at Sandhills. I mean, the site you've been there, it's, it, you know, as you're driving to that, uh, wonderful, wonderful golf course. You just say, there's a golf course, there's a golf course, there's a golf course. And of course, many more have been built and are being built in the Sandhills and developed in that world uh, subsequently. But I think that's the biggest change. Now, that being said, uh, I also think that there's more mythology in the contemporary design approach than there is reality. And that the assumptions that they are replicating now the work of the golden age designers i think is purely false and then you know tom dunn your colleague at golf week in his mckellar magazine uh in an upcoming issue i when i was doing research and driving the green i was totally enamored of robert hunter because he was uh art hills's uh, kind of theoretical mentor i mean when art 
bought a copy of the links and that became his Bible. Um, and so I started first reading about Hunter because I was working on Art Hills and I became very interested in, in, in Hunter and his work. Well, I tracked down a couple of Hunter's granddaughters and one of whom who lived in Hawaii sent me what I think is the only existing copy of the Hunter McKenzie design brochure, which is a two page document. I loaned it to Art Hills uh, because I thought that it would be interesting for the guys in the office to see. Unfortunately, uh, they cut it in half and pasted it on a poster board. Uh, I have it back now because the Art Hills office no longer exists. It, but, uh, it was torn down recently and Steve Forrest, as he was cleaning it out, he asked me if I wanted anything. I said, well, send me the Hunter McKenzie brochure back. Um, but what it shows is that the work of Hunter McKenzie was identical to the practices and approaches of the dominant group of architects from 1960 to 1995. Interesting. It was exactly the same, which is we'll do plans for you. We'll provide you with the plans. We will come periodically to review the work you're doing and approve or modify it. And that's exactly what McKenzie and Hunter did. Uh, and that's that's what I saw Art Hills doing in Florida um, in the late 80s and what every golf course design firm was doing. And the idea that somehow you had to be on site and kick the dirt around to find the holes is a myth. Um, and I always compared it to going to the dentist. You know, if you if you went to the dentist, you said, I have a toothache. And instead of x-raying your mouth and find, they started drilling. And on the third tooth, they went, ah, there's a cavity. I'll fix that. You wouldn't say, wow, what a great dentist. You would say, well, why didn't you take x-rays? Well, we have this unbelievable technology available now with LIDAR especially. Uh, and that, I, you know, I saw that um, Mike Kaiser and his son, uh, Michael, have announced that they're going to redo the Lido uh, course yeah, yeah. Uh, in, right, right. in Wisconsin. Now, this to me is like the most ironic development possible in the evolution of the career of Tom Doak, um, you know, who supposedly is Mr. Natural. And um, you're going to, this is a totally artificial if they're doing what they say they're going to do. And the only way they can do it, the only way you could do it. The old McDonald course, which I actually like, is an homage to the McDonald template holes. And they're very distinct and they're not obvious to the naive player. They probably don't even uh, appreciate the uh, where the origins of that. But for the Lido, the only way you can do it is you have to have fabulous topo. Um, I don't know where they're getting that. I don't know what in the drawings or the documents available um, from the original Lido are going to enable them to do that. But they have equipment now, literally, you can let the dozer out there run on its own if it's got the input from the, um, uh, from the good topo. So theoretically, they could Robotic. Yeah, exactly. Theoretically, you could, with the right mapping, you could reproduce any golf course in the world on any amenable site I mean, you couldn't do it on it. It's total rock, but any place that you can, you know, move the earth, you could create that. So, uh, but it's a purely an exercise in technology. It's not an exercise in imagination. Um, and so I even but thought- won't, but Might there not be a mating of the two? I mean, can you, can you use appropriate technologies with, you, you know, with the creativity of the designer to not make an exact match, but to have something that is, you know, that is very fundamentally similar, but is a new in, enhanced uh, twist on it, on things. Well, of course, you know, that's exactly the spirit in which Charles Blair McDonald and Seth Rayner and others, you know, <laughs> did their work. They did the first place. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's where it all goes back to. Nobody is inventing a golf hole per se. The details of it are what make it interesting, but nobody is starting out to say, I'm gonna invent a new kind of golf hole. It's going to be a par three and a half, or it's going to be a par, you know, whatever. I mean, it's like there's a par three, a par four, par five, 
and they have various links and they have various kinds of hazards and so on. But nobody's inventing something that's, you know, absolutely new. What, what some people are very skilled at laying in the contours in a way that make a course fun to play and interesting to play. I've often thought there is a company that generates LiDAR images of great greens because it's really important to the superintendents. And this has happened a lot of places that you're aware of if they're going to regrass their greens or rebuild their greens and which have to be done occasionally because you got, you may have some uh, agronomic issues. You may have some disease issues or drainage issues or whatever They completely redo the green. Well, if you have this lighter where you have such good control over the uh, topo, you can do that. And my question is if you, let's say you have really detailed drawings of, um, you know, a thousand of the, well-known greens in the golf universe, say the Augusta greens, the Oakmont greens, the Olympic club greens, and so on. Um, could you do a, do a program to get a, a, create an algorithm for it so artificial intelligence could start generating greens for you? And I talked to a, an AI expert in Arizona who said, yeah, it wouldn't be that big a deal, but I don't know what you know the, the value would be particularly, but I do think it would be an interesting exercise to see what was generated because it's going to discover pretty quickly, you know, that's too much contour. That's not enough. This is tilting this way. This is tilting that way. So don't you think that's going to happen? I mean, I, I can certainly see, you know, the marketing for the first artificially intelligent design of a golf course. And I mean, who wouldn't want to play it? Maybe the architect society will not like the idea very much. <laughs> Maybe there's ways they can stop that from happening. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's really interesting to me because in the same way that, you know, we've adapted technology to make things better for our lives in so many ways, although troublesome in other ways, uh, I do think that you would be where you place those greens and, and to teach it, the bigger question was, would be, how good it is a receiving shot from this, from the uh, the strategy and the dimensions of the hole you're building. In other words, a green is not an independent entity. Uh, a green is a part of a of a larger hole, both in H O L E and W H O L E hole. So, uh, but I just think it's uh, I I'm kind of uh, I'm permanently upset with the the resistance to technology in that in that sense or the idea that somehow if you're not able to you know sit on a machine and and build a green or dig a bunker you're not really a golf course architect that just seems silly oh, is there oh, is sort there... of an element of luddite luddism in this you know uh, because you know you, you're yeah. taking you're taking work away from them right i mean yeah yeah no i i think i think so i think that's part of it too but Okay, well, John, let me let me first say, you know, we could talk and, and we have talked and we will talk, but, you know, maybe we need to make this a regular series of, of John and Jim together because, you know, uh, I think we do bring, I, I'll, I'll talk about you, not me, but we we had an unusual pathway into, into our golf interest. We both love the game and have been around it now for a long time but we're, we are also professional historians and we're sensitive to certain things and maybe a lot of others aren't so let me ask you you know your book was so formative I, I can't overstate how important it was to me what would you say about the impact of your book generally with I mean did you have much of a reaction within the industry itself um, you know were you happy enough with the reaction and 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 then the next part of that question is, I know you're writing some other books related to his club, club histories and things, but do you have another another idea for another book? Is there another book in there for you? It's a wonderful question for me to respond to, Jim, because I've been so honored that people have told me that the book influenced their decision to... Uh, Trip Davis said that he was an undergraduate playing golf at the University of Oklahoma, and when he read Driving the Green... And uh, it really influenced him to want to become a golf course architect. So I was really honored by that. I've heard similar things from other people. So I think within the industry, within a fairly narrow group of people um, who uh, work in, in 
golf development. I think the book did have an impact. I was disappointed, frankly, that it didn't have more uh, a broader appeal. And I think it's because uh, oh, it, it could be for a myriad of reasons, but I think in part because it came out at a terrible moment. It came out just at the collapse of the savings and loan industry and, and, and a lot of courses going into bankruptcy. And it was three years before people started developing again. So I think the natural audience for it was kind of withered or disappeared. Um, that being said, uh, I think the latest fallout from the book, about just over two years ago, I got a phone call about this time of year from um, a guy in Florida saying uh, he'd read my book and wanted me to write about his golf course. And it turns out that the developer of Calusa Pines, Gary Chensoff, his daughter was living in Portland, working in, in landscape architecture. She found a copy of Driving the Green at the local Goodwill for 50 cents uh, and said, hey, my dad's a golf guy. Maybe he'd like to read this. So she gave it to him for Christmas of 2018, I guess it was. He said he literally started reading the first page and he said he pretty soon he drifted off to his office and ignored his family throughout Christmas Day <laughs> reading the book. And then he called me to say, I own the best golf course in Florida. I want you to write about my course. And I had to confess that I didn't know the course. And he said, I almost fired you before I hired you. <laughs> but I, he said it was designed by Mike Hurdson and Dana Fry. And I'd previously done worked on a, on a course that was designed by Reese Jones. So I called all those three guys and they all said the same thing. They said, oh yeah, that's a golf course that's worth writing about. That That's worthy. It's really special. It's exceptional. So I went down and met with him. Then, interesting, I talked to my good friend, Kurt Sampson, the great golf writer from Texas, who had written a couple of club histories, several, and one of them on a very, very good Fazio course in South Carolina. Uh, he wrote a beautiful manuscript, but he sent it to the to the owner and they just had a local printer print up and bind some copies so that the book itself is not worthy of the writing in it. It, it, it just isn't, isn't comparable to the quality of the course or the, you know, so on. So Kurt said, if you're going to do another book, control everything, make sure you control the design and printing. And stuff. So that's what I did with the Calusa Pines book. So I, I, I agreed to do the book for Gary. I wrote a book called Creating Calusa Pines, uh, which we delivered in, um November of 2019 uh the owner loved it and then based on that uh Kurt right as I was finishing that book he flew out to Portland we're both members of Gearheart Golf Links uh international uh golf club which Tim Boyle the owner of Gearheart who's the CEO of Columbia Sportswear and one of the most wonderful people in the world uh, has a, a tournament and, and he invited Kurt and me. I've been working with Tim and his team for the last 10 or 12 years on the redoing of the golf course at, at Gearhart. And it's, yeah, it's you arranged for me to play the course, remember? Yeah, yeah, ago. that's right. And you liked it, right? Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. So, wonderful. Uh, and I saw Tom Coyne in his new book uh, on the course called America uh, has a lot of praise for Gearhart. Uh, but Kurt and I then decided that there was a market. We thought there was a really good a market for doing high quality club history. So we started a company called Strawn and Samson, amazingly enough, uh, to do uh, Calusa Pines type books. So uh, we're talking to several clubs now about potentially doing 100th anniversary, 75th anniversary books. Um, but I'm also, just as far as writing goes, Jim, I'm also working on a a much more personal book, which is uh, uh, I've always been interested in my family's history, which I didn't know a lot about. My father died when I was 13. I know your father also died when, he, when you were young. Uh, so I didn't get a chance to uh, be ensconced in that family as much as I would have liked to. So I started finding out these quite amazing things to me. And um, for example, that, that my great grandfather was a wounded Confederate Army veteran who in the 1890s uh, until his death and I think 1908 was receiving a pension as a disabled Confederate veteran. And there's a bunch of documents that he had to prove that he was in 
where he was wounded and so on, and that he was impecunious, that he had assets less than $400 total, that he made less than $50 a, a year. Um, and so I started digging in that. And I was thinking about in the context of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd's death and the revelations, not revelations to everyone, but that uh, you know, African-Americans have been systematically discriminated against in, in the wealth accumulation because they weren't allowed to buy, get loans on property. They, you know, Af African-American farmers uh, were not included in the social security, uh, original social security legislation. So um, plantation owners, owners in the South could maintain their control and so on and so on and so on. So I decided that I'm writing a family history that looks in the ways in which my mostly impoverished ancestors nonetheless benefited from federal policies of disenfranchising native peoples and enslaving um, people of African descent. So uh, that's my that's my private. Well, that, that sounds terrific. I've, I've thought about doing something similar with, uh, in my family, but I haven't haven't moved on it yet but i need to wrap this up as, as yeah. I mean, we're running a little bit over hopefully people will um, stay with this it's a i think it's been fascinating i i will conclude just with another element of the homage to you that that i owe you and that is uh you not only were formative to me in terms of the, your book but when i did get the idea to write the biography of robert Trent jones senior which resulted in my book difficult par uh, you were the one that really made it happen um, because, you know, I had written to Robert Trent Jones Sr. before he died, you know, in the mid 90s and got a letter back from his attorney, you know, basically saying they, they weren't interested. And it was you and your conversations, I guess, with Robert Trent Jones, Bobby Jones, who were his son, that started the ball rolling for me and gave me entree that, you know, it was a long and challenging project for me to to get both, you know, both sons involved, Reese, and they both have become friends of sorts, uh, good friends in some ways. Um, but without you, I don't think it would have happened. So I, I really, you know, owe you that big debt of gratitude as well. And uh, um, I'm very proud of the book. And, and again, it's, I think, what I learned from you, both through the yearbook and through just my general association with you. I mean, I attended some architects meetings and some GC, some superintendents meetings that you attended with Art Hills and you introduced me to Art. And so big thank you, which I've now done publicly. Uh, hopefully I've done it enough privately, but thank you so much for sharing your story, John. There's so much more we can talk about and maybe we can revisit this not too in the not too distant future. I'm delighted, Jim. Thanks so much for inviting me and I do hope we can continue this conversation.